Welcome to the Dream Jobbing Podcast. I'm Alex Boylan, winner of The Amazing Race, creator of Around the World for Free, and all-around digital entrepreneur. My co-host is Lisa Hennessy. She is a prolific female executive producer on hit shows like Eco Challenge and The Biggest Loser. She is a global citizen, having mentored hundreds of people around the world. Together, we are the founders of Dream Jobbing, a platform that offers amazing opportunities. Each week, we interview a new inspirational person living their dream and learn how they got there through their successes as well as their failures. As producers, we love a good story, so sit back and enjoy this week's podcast. All right, welcome to the Dream Jobbing Podcast. We're very, Lisa and I are very excited because here with us we have Bobby Chacone, who is a retired FBI agent and now is a writer and technical advisor on the hit CBS series Criminal Minds Beyond Borders. Bobby, how you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks, thanks for, for me. joining. How you doing, Liz? I'm good. I'm really good. I've known I've known Bobby for how long now, over Bobby? 20 like years. 20, 22 years? Yeah, over 20 yeah. years. Uh, Bobby, um, I met Bobby when I was executive producing um, this adventure show called Eco Challenge, and um, Bobby went to the very first one in Utah. He was an FBI he was an FBI agent in New York City, and was a volunteer for Eco Challenge at every. Race we did except one, correct? Fiji, except for yeah. Fiji. Yeah, so yeah. Ten, 10, we did 10 races. Cause you, we, we did, because yeah. I did two the first year, right? We did two, we did... Yeah, we spent your 30th Utah. in Maine yeah. uh, for the ESPN Extreme Games, and Bobby had one of the best lines ever that I still use today. We were doing um, a shot of tequila at Northern Outdoors, and Bobby, it was his 30th birthday, and Bobby said, I gave him, it was like a tequila and a, a little bit of lime, and he said, don't insult me by giving me fruit. <laughs> and did the oh. shot of tequila. Oh my god. <laughs> tequila, good tequila. So you always eat tequila without. Well, if it's what, good tequila, this is probably the best way we have ever started a podcast. <laughs> How to do a shot of tequila. Well, I mean, if it's good tequila, you don't want to, yeah. you know, have well, that, I'm a tequila that drinker, so. taste of lemon or anything in your mouth, right? Don't Why would you help me by giving oh, me fruit. Oh, okay. <laughs> I might have to steal that one too, Bobby, <laughs> if that's all right. And and I'm I mean, I don't want to we love all of our guests here uh, on the Dream Jobbing podcast, but I'm telling you, I'm personally very excited about this because i think for many guys out there being a dream job would be being in and the girls, fbi and girls and girls and sorry girls. and girls i don't sorry yeah um, one of his one a lot of his partners have been females. yes and you've met them yeah exactly them. Yeah. all right now i feel bad but <laughs> i'm just still let me talk about myself i personally you look back and, and learning about your career it's um it's an adventure it's an exciting it's it's awesome it's a dream job Right. And yeah, so absolutely. I would love to just dive into learn a little bit about, more about your background and how you got into that, because you, what I learned was that you went from law school into the FBI, but you must have had a passion for this. How far does that go back? Well, my father was an NYPD sergeant, so mm -hmm. I was raised in a police family, you know, like like you'll see on TV, the legacy, you know, mm -hmm. you see fathers and sons and, and stuff stay in the same law enforcement field. So I, my father was a cop, so I was going to be a cop. So I went to college and then I did well. And so I, you know, the thoughts changed a little bit. So I went to law school and by that time my brother had become a cop in NYPD. So now my father, and my brother were both there. So I still had this pull of law enforcement, but I'm now I'm in law school. And then uh, there was a recruiting day and the FBI had a thing up and I just took an application. At that time I already had my application in with the NYPD. Um, even though I was going to finish law school and go in the NYPD. Um, but then my dad actually encouraged me to go to with the feds. He thought it would be a better career, a little more variety, a little more travel, and that kind of stuff. So uh, he did, he encouraged me that way, and that's the way I went. He just sounds like a badass by saying, and then he encouraged me to go to the feds. <laughs> <laughs> and you got put on, I mean, it seems like right out of the gates, you got put on to like a big case. Yeah, I was, I was lucky. I um, met 
uh, one of my instructors at the FBI Academy in Quantico, um, and and I became friends. He was from New York. I was from New York. We had some friends in common. And uh, when we when you get your initial assignment in the FBI, you go to a field office, and usually you're going to be doing applicant investigations, backgrounds on presidential appointees and stuff, which is good to hone your investigative skills. You do a lot of interviews, a little a lot of database checks and things like that but it's kind of boring right because you're doing a background check on somebody or you, you know except for um, this election that would actually be pretty yeah interesting. i mean some of the presidential <laughs> every four years it gets really busy and that stuff really gets like under the microscope um but in between you know maybe a judge here or an applicant there somebody's applying for the fbi and you have to do that background you know so applicants is something that everybody usually has to do but nobody kind of wants to stay on there too long so my my friend at the academy was able to make a phone call up to New York when I was com- I was initially assigned to the New York City field office, and he said, "Hey, this guy's a friend, and can we do something? And maybe you can avoid going applicants." So I went right to a a squad in Queens, New York, uh, one of the satellite offices of the FBI, and they worked organized crime. They worked the Lucchese uh, mafia family. So each mafia family has a squad of FBI agents dedicated just to that family, and there are five families that rule New York. So I was put on the Lucchese crime family squad. And is that when you went undercover? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. Um, we were running a, a case called Kenrack, which stood for Kennedy Racketeering, which was all the uh, Teamster uh, and mafia involvement at Kennedy Airport. So uh, the Teamsters were infiltrated by the mob, and you couldn't really run cargo in or out of Kennedy Airport without paying off the mob in some way. So I went undercover as a truck driver and uh, infiltrated um, some mob cells um, that were operating there, some of the families, and, and we were able to successfully... Um, uh, end the case and arrest a lot of guys. And, and how, how uh, old were you when that happened? 25. Was that, that must have been a little terrifying. That's, I mean, yeah. how, how do you mentally prepare or can you prepare for that first time that you're, okay, I'm undercover, I'm with these people, and if they found out, I, there's there's I'm trouble dead. to be at. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it, it wasn't really presented that way to me because you know, you ease into it a little bit because you start like by driving a truck, right? So all I was doing, it was like I had a different job. I was driving a truck for real. I was actually driving a truck. And, uh, I, you know, and even now I can drive an 18-wheeler. I have a, I had a commercial driver's license for a while and I can drive the big rigs and stuff. And um, But, uh, you know, so you kind of very slowly ease into it. Nobody, it's, you know, not like the movies where all of a sudden you get introduced to these guys and they accept you, you know. So we had to kind of, soft play that end of the scenario of getting me in so i was driving for a while and like and a couple of weeks or a couple, couple months, months or years? Okay. a couple of months and and then we had a guy who we knew we were going to use and he had been in jail um and he was an associate that they've known their whole lives you grew up with them and he was able to successfully introduce me into them as somebody that he served time with in prison and he vouched for me so um so that's how we. and then what was your there. mission what was the the intent to find out to really to document the um document a lot of the uh union involvement the teamster union involvement uh at kennedy airport in the cargo in the cargo uh, uh shipping shipping cargo in so were they kennedy in on airport. it y- yeah the unions were and eventually um it you know the, there was a lot of ancillary cases that got spun off and i wasn't involved in the main kenrack case except for working as an investigator but um, eventually, the Ken, when the Kenrack case got taken down, two Teamster locals got put into receivership, which means they, the federal government seized the unions 
and a, a retired federal judge was put in in charge of administering the unions now to clean it up, to get rid of all the foremans that were basically no-show jobs. These mob guys would basically be on the payrolls for a lot of these trucking companies and would not, not show up. They would never, they wouldn't really have a job there, mm -hmm. but they'd be on the payroll, so they'd get a check every week cut to them, and the union would get the health and welfare benefit payments to it and stuff. So it was a real, the no-show jobs that we used to call was a real big scam. And then, of course, like, if you were running a trucking company and you wanted to bid on a new contract, a new cargo handler, or maybe one of the cargo handlers was was going to increase their cargo, so you wanted to bid on the new contract, and it would take you 10 drivers. But your profit margin wouldn't be enough with 10 union drivers, so you'd go to the union and say, can I do it with five union drivers and maybe five guys off the books that I won't have to pay union scale and I wouldn't have to pay into the union health and welfare benefits? And the union would say, well, give us six union, four non-union, give us 500 a week, and you can do it. So they would mm -hmm. calculate that all into the cost of their bidding. Mm -hmm. They would calculate the cost, how much they'd have to pay off the union to it. So we actually did actually arrest some of the uh, truck company executives because at that point, where does, where does union extortion of the truck driving company and bribing a union official stop? You know, where does one stop and one end? You know, it wasn't the, you, it started out as these truck companies were being extorted by the union, mm -hmm. but then the unions, uh, this companies got so comfortable with the with the with the corruption that they would just pay off the union. Say, hey, I want a new contract. Can I, you know, pay you off for some, you know, less amount of, of union drivers? So, you know, so those guys started. You know, in the beginning, it was probably pure extortion, but over the years, it grew into a very cozy relationship. So even the companies were paying off the unions to kind of get bigger contracts. Mm -hmm. I can't so, help when you said that people were arrested. I can't help but see in my brain I've, I've watched so many movies and so many crime dramas like the, cue the music and all of a sudden the FBI is going in <laughs> and doing all the big arrests you know yeah. it's like we've just seen so much of this on um, in film yeah, and, and, and TV you know, now especially even more so in the late 80s the mid late 80s when I was there it was um, it was a lot of those big you know the Pizza Connection case and the Pizza Connection 2 a lot of the big Italian roundups right that you'd see and I was involved in, in a bunch of those just as a young agent you were assigned to arrest some mob mm -hmm. guy and it was like it seemed like every two weeks or once a month we were going out and doing a big sweep of all these different mob guys and stuff and so who, who are the five families you mentioned uh, the five families so it would be the gambinos which was john Gotti's family mm -hmm. uh, that was the family he was in then you'd have the colombos and then you'd have the genovese then you'd have the Lucchese's, and now you're testing me. Are they all Italian? Yeah, they're all Italian. What, what about the, didn't you work with the Jamaicans? Yeah, I, the that Jamaicans? was after the Italians. Yeah, okay. Several years later, I went into working the Jamaican posses. Mm -hmm. And then I stayed with that for like 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I became the FBI's expert in Jamaican posses. And mm -hmm. they sent me to What are you saying, Jamaican what? Posses. Posses, they're yeah. called posses. That's what they call posses. Oh, yeah. so that's not a gang? It's not, what's the posse it's, definition yeah, posse of posse? Is a gang. But I mean, they're more, they're more Was that in New York as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because you were you were pulled into a lot of stuff from that. I was I was doing the, in like the Jamaicans. In, in, yeah, we're out, yeah, like up into Canada. You were because I was, I how, was how far I did they the go? Expert, and then so as soon as I became and I was the go-to guy for Jamaicans, so I would start to getting called. And then, like several years later, they called me. I testified before Canadian Parliament because they were fashioning a what they call RICO statute. So we had the RICO statute here already, and we were using it to se successfully prosecute these gangs. But RICO stands for Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organization. And it was really a white-collar law that was passed in the late 70s, early 80s to go after corrupt white-collar firms, securities firms and things like that. But some enterprising uh, prosecutors started using it and saying, hey, these drug organizations are actual organizations under this statute. Mm -hmm. And we can start because the RICO statute gives you wide latitude on what you can bring in to, to – 
uh, charge these guys. So you can go back by 10. You can actually go past the statute of limitations on some crimes if it's involved in a RICO. So, um, so what, what did the Jamaican posse, what were they known for? Uh, well, okay. th in, th throughout the seventies, they they had they cornered the, the obviously the marijuana market, right? So they had the, the street level distribution of marijuana. When crack came along, crack cocaine in the early eighties and the mid eighties, you had this explosion of crack cocaine. The Jamaicans were in the perfect position to take that in. They had the street level retail and distribution, and they even had some of the wholesale places for the marijuana. So they had it all set up to distribute. It was just a new product that came along, mm -hmm. right? So it was the great new product. Crack, and then so the Jamaicans all got rich. A lot of the posses got rich in the mid '80s because marijuana was okay, but it wasn't a real money maker for them. But then when crack came along, um, they were in the position of just funneling it through their existing uh, pipeline of distributions of street level sellers of the of the outlets they had and stuff. So, um, what, is, what is your stance on the war on drugs? I mean, is it is it a winnable war? Well, not the way we're fighting it now. Certainly, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Uh, it's very, there's a lot of facets to it, but mm -hmm. I mean, at, at the very, <clears throat> excuse me, at a very core of it, we have to, we have to put more money into uh, education so mm -hmm. kids don't get to go, go to drugs to begin mm -hmm. with, uh, rehabilitation so the people that start getting into drugs just as users and then start to steal and start to, you know, do the crimes just, just to support their habit, we can't be locking them up. What we need to be doing is giving them a better rehab program. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, si simultaneously that you have to be educating them better in their public schools. Mm -hmm. And then you have to give them employment opportunities. Mm -hmm. Because as long as the inner cities are plagued with high unemployment and bad education. There's nothing for them to do. Everything else you spend your money on is not going to be worth it. You're just flushing it down. the mm -hmm. Because you're not giving the, these people the proper education or proper employment opportunities. Mm -hmm. And when I uh, worked against a lot of these people or locked up, I would spend, you know, the whole day with them. Sometimes you lock them up early in the morning and you have all these hearings. You're sitting outside a courthouse. And, and you know... To tell you the truth, I could understand some of their motivations because I saw the environment they were growing up in. I saw the lack of opportunity, mm -hmm. and it was really They're escaping. It was really a very, it was a it was a. I hate to say use the word wise decision, but it was a when you look at what was available to them, it was an understandable decision to mm -hmm. make. The risk and as opposed to the reward worked in their favor because you could make a lot of money, and a lot of times, you know, they saw these guys not getting caught. So. You know, I understood, and and I didn't dislike these guys that I was arresting. I mean, it was just business for us, you know, mm -hmm. and they treated it the same way, as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, somebody that's going to, you know, go after a child and harm a child, mm -hmm. you know, for no reason or whatever. So, you know, those kind of people, I wouldn't have that same relationship with. But the guys that were I was arresting in, in the in the drug war, I mean, it was just a it was a decision. It was a business decision, and mm -hmm. it was the only thing they had available to them because mm -hmm. the educational system failed them. And, and, you know, the employment situation in those neighborhoods a lot of times is failing them. If, you know, if you don't have a good education, you can't get a good job, right? So it all starts at such a lower level. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think you could ever, you know, it's almost like you have to win the hearts and minds, right? So you, you really have to give them a proper education and you have to give them proper employment opportunities or else that core, that hardcore drug uh, population, drug abuser population is not going to go mm -hmm. away because you're going to, 
keep pushing people yep. in without educations and without employment and, mm -hmm. and stuff. And so I think that, you know, that's never really been addressed properly, mm -hmm. you, you know. And so, I mean, until we start looking at those kind of issues, then, I mean, I, you know, we try. We try to improve the schools and stuff, but there needs to be, that needs to be part of a very concerted effort. All of those things have to be in place at the same time. To fix the problem. Yeah. yeah. So talk about, mm -hmm. let's talk about the dive team. Mm-hmm. Because you ran the dive team in New York, and then you came out to Los Angeles right. and started the dive team out here. Mm -hmm. So what, what does that entail? So um, so when, in 1995, <coughs> excuse me again, uh, 1995, I, was, I tried out for the New York FBI office dive team, which at that time was the only dive team in, in the FBI. And so we went everywhere. And uh, in fact, it was 20 years ago this week, one of my first big jobs on the dive team in 1996, a year in, I had a year on the dive team, and TWA Flight 800 which was a 747 that crashed off the coast of Long Island, and 230 people were aboard, and we recovered each, every victim, and we spent four months diving on that. So basically, the 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 the, the, the mission, bodies you you had to had, get the that how what was that like 230 bodies yeah and a lot of kids yeah what was um, that like or DNA it was it was a eye opener mm -hmm. you know I had seen some dead bodies in, in, in when I was working drugs you know shootings in the street and stuff that we'd get called to informants and things like that. Um, but, you know, this was just, um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the homicides that I had uh, been on the street with with my NYPD partners when I was working drugs was one drug dealer shooting another drug dealer, you know, and uh, this was just 230 innocent people mm. plunged into the ocean, you know, so it was different. And it was, uh, you know, it was uh, you still think about it. It was, you know. It's just one of those things that you're mm -hmm. asked to do. The FBI has a lot of those things. You know, you turn the corner on something, and all of a sudden, you, this is not what you expected, but mm -hmm. it's there, and you got to do the job. Mm -hmm. So the mission of the FBI dive team is basically uh, underwater investigation, which really the majority of that is uh, search and recovery for evidence. Most of the evidence we're looking for is a gun, a knife, a body, things like that. Um, occasionally a plane, a car. Um, sometimes just a hard drive as we were looking out in San Bernardino last year after the terrorist attack. That was my old team that had gone out there and searched the lake for, you know, whatever evidence they were looking for. But sometimes it's a hard drive. Sometimes it's whatever. It's, you know, the majority of it is, is guns and bodies. And so um, I joined that team in 95. Uh, by 99, um, I became the team leader. By 2000, the FBI laboratory took notice of our work and said, you know, you guys need, since you're doing such good work and since you're getting so busy and getting so many requests, we need to bring you in under our umbrella, forensically train you, really get you off scientific forensic training, and then we want you to recreate what you've done there in New York, in Miami, in Los Angeles, and in Washington, D.C., so the FBI has regional teams. And so that's what we did. I spent two years, two and a half years, setting up those other three teams, traveling um, to all those cities and doing the initial selections of their divers and working with their management on how to support the team properly, getting them space in a warehouse somewhere, that all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we set up those three teams between 2001 and 2003. And then in 2003, I was I took a transfer to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, and I joined the dive team, but they already had a team leader in, in place. So um, for the first year in Los Angeles, 2003, I went to they, they immediately transferred me to Athens, Greece uh, to prepare for the Olympics there. So I helped because uh, my wife had been already there as the producer. So uh, there was a, an opening at the embassy for uh, counterterrorism. 
training. So I took that and I, I lived in Greece for my first year, even though I was still assigned to Los Angeles. I was living in Athens, Greece, and helping the Greeks prepare um, uh, for the counterterrorism uh, at the 2004 Summer Olympics, mm-hmm. which I had done already at the 2002 Salt Lake Gosh, can you imagine if the Olympics were in Greece right now? <laughs> oh my God! That, I mean, that would—you'd have to have a very big counterterrorism team. While yeah. you're navigating through your career in the FBI, how much is your decision, or how much is them just telling you this is what you got to do? It's, you know what? It's 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 your it's it's your decision to try to take advantage of the opportunities as you see them. You know what I mean? So you have to kind of uh, be forward-looking and and seeing what's happening and where things are going. You know, and, and by that, you know, by a certain time, you have friends in the organization, wherever you mm-hmm. work, you have kind of friends, maybe they've gone before you, or right. maybe they've kind of passed some wisdom on down to you on how things work. And so you can kind of see, like, I kind of saw the dive team going under the umbrella of the FBI laboratory. I kind of like, foresaw that because somebody was telling me that. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to stay with the diving even though I had some other opportunities to do other things because I said eventually this program is just going to explode and I can ride that wave and that's what I did. Um, so, you know, it's it's other people's decisions to make that happen. But if you know it's going to happen and, and you keep up with what your you know what your company is doing, what your organization is doing, if you can see where they're going, the, the strategic decisions might not be made by you, but you can keep an eye on what's happening and you can maximize your ability to take advantage of those overall decisions that maybe somebody on a, on a higher mm-hmm. floor is making you know than you but you can you can kind of keep keep educated on where things are going and so you'll be in a good position to to kind of go where you want to go then but that's what happened so i kind of kept my eyes open on where things were going even though i wasn't making those decisions i could see hopefully where it was going and i positioned myself properly and mm-hmm. and so i was able to take advantage of that and the dive team kind of lasted me for the rest of my career because ultimately I came back from Greece and I resumed my participation in the dive team on and off till about 2007 um, because they sent me to Iraq in 2005 and then back to Iraq in 2006. And what were you doing in Iraq? Yeah, let's... let's uh, 2005 in Iraq, I was uh, training the Iraqi police Sounds like Iraq right now. It's like <laughs> going over, overhead in Santa Monica. Yeah, so they... Uh, I spent... A month or a month and a half in D.C. at the George Schultz, uh, the State Department Training Center there, learning a little bit of Arabic and a little bit about the culture. And then uh, I was put in charge of a, a five-man training, t- five-person training team uh, to go over and teach uh, a five-month course in counterterrorism. For it's really it was we say counterterrorism. It was really criminal and/or counterterrorism investigations. It was an investigators course, and we taught it to 45. Iraqi police and military officers, um, 40 Shia and five Sunni uh, made up the class. Um, And so we taught them everything from how to conduct proper surveillance, how to do an interview, how to do an interrogation, um, you know, how to do records checks with whatever records you have available to you and things like that. And they, uh, because over there at that point in time, was early on in in the campaign, 2005, we had just kind of taken over. There was not a government that was sustainable yet. And so um, under the prior regime, they, the police didn't have any real power. The army ran everything. The military did anything. Anything that anybody's going to get arrested, the police would sometimes help, but it was mainly the, the army and, and, you know, and, the, uh, and, and the special forces of, of, of Saddam's uh, regime that was going to handle anything serious. So the police officers didn't really know how to do a proper investigation. So we went over there 
and um, it was five months at a time. I only did one one course, so I was over there for five months in 2005, um, and then I came back to LA and uh, I was resumed my work with uh, on the dive team. But I was at that time only a part time diver, so I was also doing what we call special events. So I was a coordinator for special events, which means at the Oscars or the Golden Globes or the Grammys. Um, you have a very integrated law enforcement response, and a lot of it's transparent. People don't see it, but it's there. So you have LAPD, LA Sheriff, LA Fire, FBI, Secret Service sometimes, depending on who's attending. Um, so we all get together and we practice and we train for these things, and when there's a special event like that, we're all there. We're all in different positions. There's cameras. There's surveillance. There's air monitoring equipment. There's... You know, there might be dogs. There's a very coordinated effort, and everybody knows what, who's doing what and where everybody is, and we have these big, you know, the RVs that you roll up, and we we would park ours right next to LAPD, right next to LA Fire, and we'd all plug into each other's systems, and we'd kind of coordinate safety and security for those events. Um, you and you're know, looking for suspicious people. You're looking for... Yeah, any any kind of threat at that point. You know, now we're post 9-11, right? We're in, this was 2005, 2006, 2007. So we're looking for anybody that's going to, you know, come in with a backpack and lay it down or, you know, something like that, like a Boston bombing kind of thing, you know. So those are the kind of things we'd, we would also have air sensors in case somebody tried to do something, you know, in the in the air and the ventilation systems. Mm. And, you know, so all kinds of different things are deployed at those events that are, you know, like I said, they're transparent to anybody attending the event or anybody watching the event. But they're there. So I did that for a couple of years while I was still um on the dive team part-time now los angeles being what it is it's probably the busiest special events program maybe only equaled by washington field office that Mm -hmm. you know they do the inauguration they do all that so they they have some big events in washington dc new york has a few like the u.n general assembly every october where all these heads of state come to the u.n um but L.A., as far as year-round, uh, there seems to be always an award show. There's always, always a party some, in L.A. There's always there's some always big <laughs> attended party. And, you know, the, 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 the objective of many terrorist attacks are publicity, is the world's attention. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing where, you know, the, the Golden Globes with the Hollywood yeah. Foreign Press Association, it would be a, you know, a very worldwide target to mm-hmm. hit. So, you know, so I did that for a few years. And then in 2006, I was pulled onto a, a special... Um, mission by the dive team actually and they actually took the senior guys from each of the four fbi dive teams and sent us to iraq on a dive mission in southern iraq um uh and that's the case is uh it's just it was a very difficult case and it was a very brutal case and it's a crime i won't get into the details of which um but the crime was perpetrated by five u.s soldiers and so uh who came back who rotated back to the u.s after their tour in iraq was done and they rotated back uh, without being known to have committed the crime. Um, and two of them were discharged dishonorably from the service, so they were civilians. So when the case did break he, back here in the States, the Army arrested three of them, and they were subject to you know, court-martials. And then we had, the FBI had the two civilians that had been discharged dishonorably. And so we worked the case jointly with Army CID, the Criminal Investigation Division. And uh, because of the nature of the case, um, they did not want to use military divers because all the defendants were military. Three of them were still active in the military. Um, and so the Secretary of Defense called the FBI director and said, I need some divers to go over there and do this mission. So in 2006, we went over and uh, we went to southern Iraq in a very dangerous area called the Triangle of Death. 
because we had lost more U.S. soldiers there than any other place. It was three villages that formed the triangle, and Yusufia was the village that we had to go into and gather evidence of the crime that these five U.S. soldiers had had committed. Um, and the the crime was so horrific in nature that the villagers, the people there, did not want any U.S. presence there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really kind of difficult to get in and out. We had to kind of go in in the middle of the night, be inserted by helicopter, um, do our diving, uh, surrounded by a significant force protection unit, um, and then get out in the middle of the night. Um, don't know when. You're sitting on your bag, and they tell you they're going to pick us up sometime in the next four hours, but they won't tell us when. So just be ready to go because op- operational security requires them to be very secretive about when they're flying, where they're flying. So we wouldn't even know. we just get a 10-minute jump, and we would have to scurry through some small farm fields and i remember tripping in the dark because it's pitch black and you just hear the helicopters coming to pick you up and and then i remember at some point we were running and our army guide who's the only one with night vision goggles was leading us to the landing zone and and you could hear the loud the helicopter getting louder and louder and then you heard them get lower and lower and then he turns around says go back go back go back we can't go there uh, so we had to go back to where we were, hunker down, and wait for them to come somewhere else. I assume that's because where they were landing, they saw hostile forces, and they were, you know, if they picked us up there, we would have probably come under fire. So they peeled off, and then they came back about 45 minutes later at another place. So we had to hike around a little bit to another place. So, so you literally, are, I mean, the story is like being in a feature film. You know, it's, yeah. It's well, I'm I'm actually writing the feature that has to do with our involvement, mm-hmm. the dive team involvement, the actual crime that took place. Brian De Palma made a movie about it mm-hmm. already, and it's been it was released in 2008, and it's called Redacted. Redacted. Redacted, Redacted mm-hmm. is yeah. the is the Brian De Palma movie about the crime, but he didn't include. He need didn't to watch that now. Yeah, me yeah. too. Netflix. Must it's be. probably on Netflix. Yep. Yeah, and he. Um, he stops his story at the arrest, I think, of the guys. So mm-hmm. he didn't. I don't even think he knew that we were there, and because it was after his, his story ends at the mm-hmm. at the end of the crime. I think when they get arrested. Um, but uh, well, m- speaking of writing, that's mm-hmm. like so you when d- you retired from the FBI, how many years ago? Two years ago. Two years ago, and mm-hmm. so you know, uh, at Dream Jobbing, you know, we also it's not just about starting your career; it's about in some cases changing your career. Mm-hmm. And you just recently have changed your story. Um, and entered in the next chapter of your career. And what is it that you're doing now? Right now, I'm the technical advisor for Criminal Minds Beyond Borders, which is a spinoff of the original Criminal Minds show on CBS. Um, our show stars Gary Sinise and Alana De La Garza. And um, the concept is this team of FBI profilers can take a crime or a series of crimes um, and use the evidence from the crime scenes and from the investigation and build a profile of who actually committed these crimes just through looking at the evidence and looking at the crime scenes. And they're all, they all have psychology degrees and they all have advanced degrees in, in forensics and things like that in training. And so they build a profile of who the offender is, the unsub we call, unknown subject. So, um, uh, and, and our show, each week, our team is deployed to a different country. So that's why it's called Beyond Borders. So we'll be in India one one week and in Morocco the next week and in South Africa the week after that. So it's um, uh, we did uh, one season. We got it renewed for a second season. We're filming the second season now, which should air in the, hopefully the late fall. And what are, you, what are you doing on the show? What is a technical advisor? As a technical advisor, I work with the writers on ideas and, um, you know, some some story outlines and things like that. And then um, uh, that's kind of a minor, m- minor part. The major part of the, of the role is to be on set 
and work with the director uh, and the writer and the cast and to make sure that um, that the FBI is being portrayed accurately and the actors are, are acting in a way that's consistent with the way the FBI would act in real life as much as we can, mm -hmm. given the limitations of entertainment, right? Mm -hmm. So so there's always a balance and, and stuff, but my, I'm there to, you know, uh, the writer of the episode is always on set, and so I work with the director and the writer and, and the cast to make sure that, you know, everything is accurate as possible. Mm -hmm. How did that opportunity come from your past when, like. when i retired um we immediately moved to brazil because my wife took the job producing the olympics there and um i i was really off for about a year i didn't do anything i, I was writing i was writing my own stuff um so you've had a passion just, for writing oh yeah i've wrong. been writing for many years just again not, you know n not much of it's very good but it's just something i would do for myself and that was what i was doing for the first year of my retirement um and walking along my dogs along the beach. And then last August, um, I got an email through a um, email chain of retired FBI agents. So there's a kind of this loose network of retired FBI agents that kind of use it for networking. It's social, it's business, it's kind of a, a little catch-all thing. And it's just to keep in touch with people. And you guys retire so young. Yeah, I mean, I, well... I mean, I don't because, yeah, I mean, I always knew I was going to retire, mm -hmm. you know, in my at 50 or shortly after mm -hmm. I was 50. Um, is it standard in the FBI? Yeah, it, it pretty much is. If you're if you're 50 years old and you have 20 years in the bureau, then you're eligible for your pension. Mm -hmm. um, now, each year you stay, the pension gets a little better. It's mm -hmm. a little percentage that's added each year. Um, 57 is our mandatory retirement mm -hmm. age. So you have to be out the door on the last day of the month in which you turn 57. Mm hmm. Unless you get an extension, they're very rare. The FBI director has to grant you an extension. You have to have like some really special skill set that the FBI doesn't have anywhere else. It's rare for an for to have an extension. Um, so usually, fifty-seven is the you can start retiring at fifty, and fifty-seven is the mandatory retirement. Um, and so a lot of guys, you know, if you think about a career change at a certain age, you know, you can sit there and say, "Am I a more attractive candidate in my second career at 50? or 57 right so a lot of guys get out at 50 because now they want to start that second career so they can get 15 or 20 years in into that second career before they retire if you go out at 57 people might look at you a little different mm -hmm. than if you're 50 so that's the that's the decision there but um so through this group of you know fbi retired fbi agents uh that kind of maintain contacts with linkedin and some of the other you know uh, uh web-based stuff we just kind of they put out a, an email and about this and the guys that were hiring didn't know me um but they made you know they made a few phone calls to check on me and everybody in the bureau if you don't know somebody you know someone who knows them Right, mm -hmm. you're almost almost one step removed, mm -hmm. and uh, so they kind of what we call did a round robin, which means you kind of call all around to people who knew him, and so they did that, and then they, you know, I saw the email, I responded to the email, I waited, and within about six hours, I got an email back saying, hey, you know, can you come to L.A.? And I was in Rio, so I literally got on a plane within a couple of hours and flew up, and I was up here for the second day of filming because the guy who was supposed to have my job. Uh, got another job in production uh Goes a down for a missing dial graphic, yeah, yeah. National missing dial that uh, okay. actually uh, someone who we know his son was down in costa rica 
hiking and went missing. And yep. so now one of the other FBI agents went down there and was part of this National Geographic. Went down with the dad series. looking for the kid. The kid had been missing two years, and Nat Geo was funding kind of this expedition to go down there and find him. And they brought my the guy who had my job, who was a retired DEA agent, and uh, and another guy that we work with who's a retired Air Force power jumper. And the two of them were are the on-camera guys doing the investigation for Nat Geo and Missing Dial. Um, and so he had to go, and so these, the, my boss, who's a writer on our show, um, was kind of stuck, and he's like, look, we really need you. Can you help us out? We're in a jam. And so I just came back up, and they liked me, and, you know, I did. I, they, I guess I did well enough, and uh, so they called me back for season two, and they said, we want you to do all the episodes this season. So I'm up here now full-time doing the filming of season two. This is a new chapter. It's like the greatest ride. <laughs> it's like I get to be in the FBI, do all these amazing adventures, right? Yeah. And then when I retire, I'm gonna get into Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming that's the one percent of the I'm FBI. Very or I mean, what is the typical path after FBI? Is uh, it across the map? Usually corporate security. Usually, no. you know, the heads of security for some of your major companies are prior FBI agents. You know. Um, like Disney and, and some of the bigger corporations that have large uh, security firms, security components within their organization. Usually those guys are retired FBI, Secret Service, uh, those kind of things, Homeland Security. They're populated in, in the private corporate security world. Mm -hmm. That's where most of the guys go. Some guys go out and hang a private investigator shingle out and try to do, you know, small private investigations and stuff. You know, some go to work for lawyers as investigators. It's It varies, but... You know, everybody kind of stays in that security field, and it's certainly not what I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like it's, it's similar in the sense of a community because the FBI seems like this tight group of people, right? Going mm -hmm. off to oh, you yeah. got a mission, right? And production is very much the same way. You got a mission, you go make this episode, right? Right. And so right. there's there's some parallels there that oh yeah, must be. the FBI. We always used to kind of work late at night, work through the night sometimes, and stuff. And on production, you're kind of always doing yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. So if you if you look back um, at such an extraordinary career, like what was the what was the defining moment? What, what, what would you call your defining moment? Uh, it's it's tough. I would say you know, Tita Wife Flight Eight Hundred had a, a pretty profound impact. Uh, it was it was horrific, and and yet it drew me in. If and I say that in this way, it was. It just a, it's just a tremendous tragedy, mm -hmm. but it told me that that's what I wanted to do, like, mm -hmm. you know, to help the people. Because I remember a year later, we went back to, uh, they had a ceremony, a one-year ceremony, and all the families of the victims were there, and they all wearing these big buttons on, on uh, a, a pic the buttons had the pictures of their loved ones who had been lost and stuff, oh, and they threw us, they threw all the divers a big, kind of barbecue party at the shore where where we would leave every day on our boats to go out and recover people and things and uh just the outpouring of like thanks and appreciation and and stuff and you know i really you know i really said like this is like meaningful work mm -hmm. you know this is like serving serving is turning a really these people mm -hmm. and 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 these loved ones who have faced the you know the worst tragedy they could you know people lost you know wives and husbands and children. children and every you know and stuff and so it, you know so that was like okay i found this place because you know the drug war had burned me out mm -hmm. we were, you know i just didn't want to do it anymore it just seemed to be too too negative and too depressing you know there was no end in sight you know because i started in the, the mid to late 80s right and so um it, it just it, you know I, after 10 years it was like you know you're pushing 
sand against the tide type of thing. Mm -hmm. And so um, this was like something that like I never, you know, anticipated in law enforcement because my brother was a police officer and on, you know, police officers and firemen, they, they wear uniforms. So there is, at least back then, there was some goodwill uh, towards them and they got to go into parades and, you know, they got to help people sometimes. You mm -hmm. know, sometimes police actually, my brother did actually help people. Um, the FBI never has that component, or rarely had that component back then. Um, we don't wear a uniform, so nobody ever recognizes us. We never get to throw the first ball out at a ball, at a ball mm. game or anything like that, right? We're always the ones sitting there um, quietly in plain clothes, and no one knows who we are. Um, or undercover. Or undercover. <laughs> and so, you know, so it was, you know, this, when, when Tierra happened, I, you know, th this was the first time that I felt like, you know, I was actually helping somebody. And now the FBI has now branched out and has more components that actually do a lot of that, too. We have victim witness coordinators that do a lot of stuff like that, outreach programs and things. But back then, it wasn't it wasn't so prevalent in the FBI. And, and you know, that was kind of the, the defining moment. You know, I spent only two or three more years working drugs and diving at the same time before I transitioned to diving full time. And then since then, you know, all of the people, you know, Lacey Peterson and, and, and Chelsea King and Samantha Koenig and all these kids that we were able to help, their families, we were able to help them and bring them back. You know, I think that uh, that that was kind of a calling, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that was and it, it came, it started at that at TWA and then especially at that one year that one year mark when when the family when we met the families and stuff and then after that i've met many of the families that we were that we were involved with bringing their children back to them and stuff and so that was well thank you thank yeah. you and thank you for your whole family for oh, for the yeah. service thank you what what advice thoughts suggestions would you give to that kid out there maybe in college maybe in high school who's thinking about a career in in the fbi um Never give up. Never, never assume it's unreachable. You know, always try. You always keep going. You know, in education and in experience and stuff, and never go. Oh, that, that sounds like so. I would love to do that, but it just sounds like an impossible thing. You know, because people do those jobs. Someone's going to do it, and we're all in high school together, right? We're all. You know, no one's like Jason Bourne when they're in high school, right? So we're all equal at some point, and just through some effort and some persistence is what really makes the difference over the long run. It's like someone's going to get that job and someone's going to be trained and not, it's a job that not everybody, nobody has that experience before they go in. I didn't know how to be an FBI agent, so I had no upper hand on anybody. You know, it was just through education and persistence. It took me two years to get the job after I applied, but it was just persistence and calling the recruiter. Hey, how's my application going? You know, do I, can I do anything else? Uh, how'd this happen? You know, getting your stuff in on time, being prepared for that process, learning about the process. And nowadays, everything, so much is online. Even the FBI process now has all been automated. So get online and learn as much as you can about the process and then prepare yourself to be in the process, right? And then don't give up because, you know, I mean, it's 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 a persistence thing. And, and if you keep knocking on the door, eventually someone's going to answer, right? Someone's going to open the door. And if you could walk away, then the chance of them answering the door goes to zero, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. so great advice. It's just persistence and being prepared and, 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 and just doing your research and, and, and things are good. Things are bound to happen. Well, this is awesome. I mean, Bobby, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. It's awesome. Um, thank you we, for having me. Yeah. And, and we need to 
get some drinks on the books here. I want to hear some. <laughs> I want to hear more. No but fruit. Where, no. <laughs> tequila, but no, no fruit. Yeah, no fruit. Um, where can people find you? They want to find more information. Can they follow you on Twitter or Facebook? Uh, my Twitter is Bobby Chacon FBI. That's B O B B Y C H A C O N FBI. Awesome. That's how they get me. Thanks a lot for being on here, man. Thank we you. We appreciate it. Thanks. Cheers.